If you've got your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Uh, about a week ago, maybe a week and a half, I was at some district meetings, a district conference for the Free Church, and one of the seminars that I attended at that conference was on social justice. And, and it was led by a man named John Gerhardt. I know John. Uh, my daughter had participated in his ministry down in New Orleans, is where his ministry is at, a ministry called Urban Impact. And uh, he was describing in that seminar the broken lives of people in that city of New Orleans and really the, even the broken systems of the city itself. I don't know if you realize, but uh, New Orleans has the highest per capita murder rate in the country, even beyond Chicago. Chicago gets all the press, okay, but uh, New Orleans is actually worse than Chicago. But their goal is to impact the inner city, obviously to bring the gospel to, to that community. They provide training, education, and work skills even. But one of the dynamics of the, or maybe the goals of their ministry is functionally this. They want kids to be able to ride their bikes safely on the streets without worrying about getting shot. And, and as I pondered that, I go, boy, that's real, we want more snowmobile trails and cross-country groom trails, and they're worrying about kids getting shot on the streets. I, I think we take things for granted. As I listened to that, even we, we were wrestling with the whole, we want even more schools and buildings, and we do want great education for our kids. And as I was listening to him, one of the examples that he uses in one of the schools right in his neighborhood, there was a teacher that was teaching Microsoft Word. But the teacher had to actually draw the, the windows, the Microsoft Word document on the chalkboard because they didn't have a, a computer to show the kids. And you go, boy, is that different than, than we are used to. But poverty, they don't have the tax base down there. Katrina has still devastated the city. A lot of those homes are, really need to get torn down, and, and, but just the poverty rate, they're, they're just not worth anything, so their tax base is pretty well shot. Now, there was some good news for New Orleans as well. The unemployment rate for, for black males has actually dropped in the recent year or so. Uh, unemployment has dropped from 52% to 44 Now, that is... When you think of a broken city, broken lives, that's from a negative aspect. But there is a positive way to understand broken as well. I think back to Easter when we acknowledge that Christ was broken for us, and because of that, there are benefits to a Savior that died on the cross. Uh, last week, the ability to have relationships becoming one the, the today another even that flows out of that is this idea that we are now set free from sin and set free to serve one another i don't know if you notice the tile on your bulletin today free to serve now let me give you the context before we read a couple of verses here the church at galatia 
was a church that they came to faith, many of them came to faith, and they were struggling as Paul was writing this letter. And one of the reasons they were struggling is that there was people coming in wanting to take these young Christians back to the law of Moses, to put them under the law of the Old Testament and all the rules and rituals. And fundamentally, it would be moving them toward legalism. And, and Paul is reminding them, you guys are free. But that was one direction, but then there was others within those churches that were moving another direction, and and it's this, they were using their freedom to basically do anything they wanted. And Paul was saying, if you go down that path, it's a path of selfishness, and it's going to put you in bondage again, bondage to the flesh. So you understand there's these two extremes and what he wanted for this church is for them, for them to walk in a type of freedom that is something very different than those two extremes. It's not the law, but it's not do as you want. Let's begin by reading the passage in first, just verse 1 to begin with. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And if he was here today, he'd say, Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, I'm going to skip the next verses through verse 12. And he goes back and he's pointing out again, stay away from the guys that are trying to pull you back into the law. But we come to verse 13, and that's where we pick it up again. For you were called the freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you debite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, there's a key phrase in here that we're going to dig at here this morning. I'm going to put that on the screen. I underline it there. But through love, serve one another. So you catch where the, the sermon title came from. This idea we are free to serve one another. Now let me also begin with another question. As we look at ourselves as a church, I'll throw the question, what would our church look like in maybe, I just put, picked a number, three years, if we truly embraced that phrase, through love, serve one another? What would any church look like? if that became a part of the DNA of our church more and more and more. See, this issue of serving each other, one of the challenges of being a pastor is is getting people to jump in and serve. But here's what we can do. We could do this. Let, Let me just guilt you into serving. But you realize it often doesn't last when people serve out of guilt. See, the realization that when it comes to serving in our topic today, that our motives, why we do what we do, matters. Motives matter. Last weekend, 
I was doing a marriage retreat for a number of couples at the church. And the goal of that weekend is to stir the intimacy between a husband and wife. It's a very different retreat. I'm hoping someday we're going to keep offering these. But you'll recognize that the goal is to go deeper with the relationship together. But as I was pondering the sermon this week, I thought of the marriages that are within our body here, represented even in here in the church. And what would it be like in marriages if the marriages, both people were were taking this phrase, through love, serve one another. If marriages embrace that phrase, I, I think this, I think marriages would be transformed like never before. Now, at the retreat last weekend, I was preaching them at them at Sunday morning a little bit, took a little longer. And one of the texts that I referred to on Sunday morning was 1 Corinthians 13. It's, if you know the Bible, it's called the love chapter. It's a chapter that unpacks what love is really about. But in that chapter, there is a very, I believe, a very difficult verse. And I want to put that verse on the screen. And it deals with the issue of serving and our motives. Look how it reads, verse 3. If I give away all I have, and I could translate that, if I serve with everything I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Serving has a qualifier. The qualifier is love. Love. If I were to want to serve that ministry in New Orleans, and I, you know, I I listen to the speaker and I go, oh, I feel so guilty with all that we have. I'm going to move down to New Orleans and I'm going to give everything. I'm going to give my time. I'm going to give my energy. I'm going to give my money. But hear this. If my motive is not right in God's economy, it means nothing. All of that can mean nothing. Matter of fact, I don't know if you caught in the verse where it says, if I deliver up my body to be burned, what is that? It's sacrificing and serving to the extent I'm willing to give my life away. And if the motive is not right, the gain is nothing. The gain is nothing. See, too often we serve with the wrong motives. We have passions, but is the motive connected to love? The the speaker, John Gerhardt, when he was speaking on social justice, uh, one of the things he did is he went after the left politically and he went after the right politically. And he pointed out a couple things in that when you think of the passion on both sides of the political spectrum, the passion for immigrants, the passion for the unborn, the passion for people saying, we've got to return to family values and we're going to serve and work hard to rescue and, and reinstitute those values in prayer and school. And both sides are trying to rally people for action and service. But here's the deal. If you hold what we do up to the lens of that phrase, 
through love serve one another, I suspect most of the time it would come up short. See that 1 Corinthians 13, 3, though I give my body to be burned for my agenda, and if I have no love, I gain nothing. See, the challenge is to serve with a motive of love. Through love, serve one another. You know, my wife is out in the foyer, but if that's true, that also applies even to my marriage. Or any cause, it applies to even serving at church here. I can be committed to serving my wife, but if the motive is not out of a love-based relationship, it means nothing. In God's economy. I could give a million dollars to some worthwhile cause, but if the motive isn't right, it comes up short. But here's the good news in this. God is in the business of transformation, and one of the things that he actually wants to transform is our motives. He actually wants to transform us as to why we do what we do. That's also a part of the transformation in terms of us individually. But going back to that question, what would it look like two, three, four years from now if we as a body, we as a church family had this growing purity in our motives and we adopted that phrase, through love serve one another? That becomes our DNA. Well, let me unpack you some of the pieces to that and how this text fits with that phrase. Look at verse 13 again. For you were called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He used the word brothers. That means that there are, they've followed Christ. They've put their faith in Jesus. And he, remind, he reminds them that because of the death of Christ, you guys are free now. You're set free. You no longer are in bondage to sin anymore. But you notice that he gives a negative command first of what not to do. Don't allow your freedom to pull you into the flesh. Don't go, can I say this phrase, the kids are gone. Don't go stupid with your freedom or you're going to get trapped in the flesh. Now, Maybe you haven't grown up in the church and you go, what is the flesh when, when the scriptures teach on that? And here's, I, I came up with a, a quote. I found this quote that I think just nails it. Here's what the flesh is. It's within each of us. It is the rebellious, unruly, and obstinate part of our inner self that is operative all the time. It is that part of us that does not want to be told what to do. It is stubborn, refuses correction, and does not want to have a thing to do with God. It bristles at limits and rules. It recoils at anything that might cause me to be diminished or something less than the center of the universe. The flesh hates to be under authority or to have to yield to anything other than its own wishes and desires. The flesh often desires something simply because it is forbidden. That's the flesh. He's right on the money. But what would it look like if real freedom, and we came to that point where through love, we serve one another. 
Let me throw you some realities. Number one, if you're following along in the sermon notes here, I said it this way. As a church, if we were embracing that, we would be leaving and watching consumerism in the rearview mirror. The flesh feeds consumerism. And even within churches... One of the great challenges of the 21st century church is that we live and breathe in a consumeristic society. And it becomes the default setting of many churches of today. People come to church and view it as a type of store, a Costco. A church has goods and services. What is in it for me? What do I get out of it? And then we throw in this word freedom, which we love, and we get, to do, we, you know, we get to be free to do it our way at church. And I understand American independence actually feeds into that idea, and it breeds that DNA into our hearts that no one has the right to tell us what to do, what to say. We're independent. Yeah. See, the flesh creates consumers but what if through love we really served one another and i think this i think this would happen i think people new people coming into these through these doors they would find first that we're not perfect and i tell you that just look at my life and you're going to find no perfection here folks But I think what they would see is that more and more people are moving spiritually in their lives. Now, I don't know all of you well. I know some of you much better than others, obviously. But it's been fun. One of the benefits of being a pastor at times is to get to know people in such a way where you know what's happening deep within their hearts. And I know a bunch of you where I can say this. Consumerism is being pushed in the back. I I see real spiritual growth in many people. But even more and more, where do we want to go as a church? And I would say this. We want to become a church that's committed to be helping anybody who calls this their home to be set free from the power of the flesh. That definition. To move toward spiritual freedom in such a way that they can move toward this command through love, serve one another. You become, move from consumers to givers. And and little, we're bonding with Christ in such a way where consumerism just doesn't matter anymore. But I think there's a second thing that would happen as well. If we embrace this phrase, number two in your notes, we would have a growing burden for those who need a life-changing relationship. It's the way we see people. See, we'd begin to see more and more the needs of people, and even those who have no church home to attend. And what ultimately happens is we let go of our agendas for the sake of God working in somebody else's life. See, it really goes back to that first point that we talked about. If I claim to have a maturing faith, 
Recognize this, church then is less and less about me and more about the other person. Especially those that do not know Jesus, are far from Jesus and need to walk toward him. And those that even are stuck in the flesh. That's what church primarily is about, is helping people move toward maturity. And it becomes more important, so I set aside my needs for the sake of those that are younger or don't know Jesus. And to realize that we even come together. And as we look around and we look at people, we go, I'm going to serve them. Because I love and love God and go, I want them to taste of who God is. Through love, serve one another. Compassion grows. And, and understand this, when the DNA of a church begins more and more to embrace that, a couple things happen. One of them is spiritual growth will take place and physical growth will take place. More and more people will be attracted to that. Matter of fact, people who, where the Holy Spirit has a hook in their life and he's gently just trying to kind of reel them in like a fish, those people are attracted to a gathered body where lives are being changed. It's attractive. And they want to be a part of it. So we grow both spiritually, we grow numerically, but it's always about the spiritual change and the Holy Spirit working. But let me give you another, a third consequence if, we, if our real motive is love. Number three, we would have an increasing energy to serve others as much as we serve our families and ourselves. Through love, serving one another, there would be an energy that would be created that would be moving just like we give to our families. Now, you might ask the question, okay, Ken, where in the text does that say this? Well, let me show you. Verse 14, I'll put that on the screen here. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now there's a lot of confusion around this phrase that you love your neighbor as yourself. Some people take it like this. This is about me loving myself, I need to love myself. And you go, nope, that's not what it means. And others would take it a second dysfunctional an interpretation would be this. It means my self-esteem. And you go, no, that's not what it is either. See, both Paul and Moses and Jesus, when they reiterated this claim, assumed that all people love themselves. Let me put a statement, really the clear definition of it. You shall love your neighbor as you already Love yourself. That's the assumption. We already. Matter of fact, Paul actually uses this concept in Ephesians 5. Speaking, I'll read it. I don't have it on the screen. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, just like they love their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. No man ever hates his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. Do you feel the assumption of that? 
See, in other words, self-love means that we have an intense passion and interest in our own lives first, and that's assumed. We have interest in terms of our health. We, have, we're, we care about our safety. We care about our happiness and joy. We care about the future. We have to admit that we care about this, these things in our individual lives. But he says to love your neighbors as yourself. What does that mean? There needs to then be a growing desire to care about what happens to the other person just as much as we care about ourselves. So we'd be looking around at other people within the body of Christ and going, I'm going to care for that person just like I care for myself. Let me make a statement, put it on the screen so you catch both hearing it and seeing it. Love your neighbor is a command to take your natural already existing love of self and use that self-love to be the measuring rod. That's the standard of your love for others. I don't know if we realize that this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is incredibly difficult to pull off. And we kind of scoot over it. But it means this, if we want to feed the, we would want to feed the hungry as much as we're anxious to go feed ourselves. We have lunch coming up. We would care about those who don't have food because we care about eating lunch. It means we would want our neighbors who don't have a job to have To have a job because we are glad that we have a job and thankful that we have a job. For students, it would mean this, is you would want your fellow student to get an A just as much as you want that A. Now for me, it was C's, okay? We would want to help someone who's, who's sitting on the side of the road out of gas We would want to help them as much as we're thankful and going, man, I got a full tank of gas today. And we're grateful for that. See, in sports, it would mean this. We'd want the other person to have a chance to play. And on the same time, we're going, I want to play the whole game. It would be equal. We want the other person to have the same what we want. It means that we'd want to share the love of Christ with our neighbors as much as we we just go, oh God, I'm so thankful that you've adopted me into your family. We'd want to look at our neighbor and go, I want that them to have it as well. Are you catching the intensity of this command? And it includes the energy and the commitment that we give to the family is going to be the same as to the neighbor, to the other person. But here's, here's the challenge, I think, for us in our culture. We make our children and our family the top priority in our lives. And this verse says they're to be equal. Do you realize again how hard it is for this command to be lived out? 
when it comes to the con to the family, here's what we do. We create a rating in our minds. We start and we go, God is number one. My family is number two. My church is number three. And my neighbor, that other person, is number four in the, in the importance of them. And understand, the command to love your neighbor as yourself throws that kind of system away. It's actually contrary to the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Matter of fact, let me show you a passage that points this out. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. And Jesus asked, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, Look, these are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. This is a very messy text for families. See, people were bringing the message to Jesus as he's speaking, and they assumed that Jesus should drop everything and go deal with his family because they were first priority. And Jesus said, nope. I got neighbors here to deal with. Do you understand the challenge of that command to love your neighbor as yourself? The energy that God calls us to beyond just our self-interests. Let me give you another result, though. Of through love serving one another. Number four, we would be working together to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Together. Let me put up on the screen 15 through uh, 17 here. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, you've got to remember something here as he writes. He's writing to a group of people. We, when we take the scriptures, we, we always want to personalize it to the individual. But this is talking about a church. But he gives this negative picture where a group of people are obviously not walking by the Spirit and they're giving in to the desires of the flesh. And you notice the three words, bite, devour, consumed. That was the relational world that he was trying to pull him away from that environment. And Paul gives this life-changing command, but rather, walk by the Spirit, and through love, serve one another. See, when those commands are embraced, people are too busy to devour one another. They're actually too busy to fight. When you care and you're serving one another out of a motive of love, conflict just goes away in a church and even in a marriage. Serve one another 
people's lives are changed. But understand something here. He implies that it can really only happen when we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit. So it includes giving of our time, our energy, walking with that Spirit saying, God, what do you want me to do with my time, my energy, my money? And he's saying, use it. Use your energy to serve one another. Use your time to serve one another. Use your money to serve one another. You know, let me connect it to the building project a second. You know, we're on the cusp of when the frost goes out here in the middle of July. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But pretty soon we're going to be digging in this hillside next to us, okay? And Jesus, in the midst of this, is inviting us to give of our time, our energy, and to serve even with our money. And and you know what the easiest one that I could appeal to you on is the money one? Because the reality is, is that we serve with our finances. Uh, You know, yesterday I stopped and I bought a cup of coffee. I was serving myself paying for that cup of coffee, using my money to serve me. Do you understand? Even as we head into a building project, one of the ways to serve the body of Christ is to regularly give toward the body of Christ to recognize that we have a building project and maybe some of you haven't jumped on board yet. I would encourage you to really prayerfully consider. But then there's a general fund as well. But giving, actually giving the money in our day and age is actually the easiest one. What does it mean to give of our time to serve one another? Our energy to serve one another? That's where it gets more tricky. We only have 24 hours. What does it mean? What does it look like? Walking by the Spirit. Jesus helps us navigate that and figure that out. But he wants us to use all of those things to walk and and ultimately love points to serving Christ, serving the body, serving one another. That's what God is inviting us to. Matter of fact, once we start digging here in the ground, I I look at those workers that are going to be coming on our site, and wouldn't it be so cool if they come and they're building on this spot and they know something is different about this group of people? And we're going to be inviting you to do that. We're hoping to do at least a meal a month for the workers. We're going to try to bless them. We want to pray for them. But what if some of, some of those guys have had terrible experiences from a church and all of a sudden they're feeling, sensing that there's a group of people who care about them, who love them. See, again, I I think one of the things that's happened is that God maybe puts a hook in their life to maybe come back someday. See, the day we open up, and let me throw another piece to you. The day we open up, again, people are going to check us out. This is my fifth building project, and people are going to check us out. 
But what if they walk into this space and, and they taste it and smell it? This is a group of people that loves Jesus. That's through love is serving one another. Do you understand what God is wanting to do in us as we're walking forward? We're taking and caring about people where they're at spiritually. You know, the building becomes the tool, frankly. We, we, we kind of forget that. The, the goal is not the building. The building is being a tool so people's lives can be transformed for the glory of God. We can become a different church because Christ was broken for us. And we celebrate to that, with that today. But I realize, again, we're not perfect. But can we more and more, through love, serve one another? And I, I, It would be fun three years from now to look at this celebration and to have another celebration and we're launching another something project, whatever it is. Maybe it's a church plant, whatever. And, and God's forcing us to do something else. But let me give you one more verse to end with. A little bit later in the chapter, Galatians 5.22. Look at how it reads. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We always look at this verse and we just individualize it. This is about my life and the fruit in my life, but understand that it is more than that. This is collective. He's writing to churches again. Collectively. We want, within this church, a spirit of love. We want joy. We want peace. We want patience. We want kindness. We want goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then this incredible phrase, against such things, there's no law. He gives us freedom within the context. All of those things, you understand, are worked out in relationships. All of those fruit are really connected to relationships. See, God wants to change us. And he wants to change us because he loves us. And today we, we go to the table and we go, this is the call to remember what he has done for us. And guys, go ahead and hand out the elements, the bread. It reminds us that Christ was broken for us. And he wants to change our hearts And he wants other people to know and experience himself. And that's what we work for. That's why we, through love, serve one another.